0: Okay, well, kids, this was one of those very humbling interviews where I went in with a whole plan and then had to throw the whole plan out the window. Said defenestration was required because my interviewee, John Kabat-Zinn, is a magically unpredictable dude. Deliberately or not, he delivered for me a great Buddhist teaching on abandoning my expectations, which is a lesson I need to learn over and over again. I went in wanting to talk to John about his new book about managing pain with meditation and mindfulness. And we did talk about that a little bit, but then he ended up tripping out in some fascinating and beautiful ways about everything from rethinking anxiety to the future of the species to the Buddha's teachings in one sentence. And more, we talked about meditation as a love affair, how to achieve equanimity, and the invitation to die now. For those of you who don't know, Jon Kabat-Zinn, PhD, is professor of medicine emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Back in the 1970s, he came up with something called mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR, which is a secular way of teaching Buddhist meditation. John may have some quibbles with that description, but it's basically true. MBSR is massively useful and impactful in many, many ways. It allowed for millions of skeptical non-Buddhists to meditate and gain the benefits of the practice. It also gave scientists a secular replicable protocol, an eight-week program for teaching meditation. That secular replicable protocol allowed scientists to research meditation in a systematic way, and they came up with all this fascinating information about what the practice does to our physiology and psychology. And without all of that research, many of us, myself included, might never have started meditating. So much of the credit for my own practice and maybe yours can be traced back to John Kabat-Zinn. John has written many books, including Full Catastrophe Living, Wherever You Go, There You Are, and Coming to Our Senses. And he's got a new book called Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief. In this conversation, we talked about Uh, a bit of the origins of MBSR and its relation to pain relief. We talk about pain versus suffering, the accessibility of awareness, the limitation of mindfulness meditation as a self-improvement practice, the quotation, open your mouth and you're wrong, and his definition of healing, which he thinks of as coming to terms with things as they are. Buckle up, kids. This is a good one. John Kabat-Zinn, welcome back to the show. Thank you Dan, it's really nice to be here. Always great to have you on. And I know your new book is on pain, mindfulness meditation for pain relief. And so an obvious starting question, very simple one would be why pain? Why this subject?
1: Well, that was in some way my entry into MBSR. Was when I back in 1979 when I was working at the UMass Medical Center in a, you know, in a science lab doing molecular biology and talking to physicians because I was really interested in bringing meditation into the mainstream of medicine, which in 1979 would have been considered, you know, the the height of lunacy or the Visigoths are at the gates of the citadel of Western (laughs) civilization about to tear (laughs) tear it to pieces. Um, So I went around talking to doctors and asking questions like, what percentage of your patients do you feel you actually help? And I was astonished by what they said. And they said, well, maybe 10%, maybe 15%. And I said, my God, what happens to the rest of them And they say things like, well, they either get better on their own or they never get better. And so I said to them, well, do you feel like it would be valuable if you had a place to send all the people that you didn't know what to do with anymore and sometimes didn't even want to see again because it was frustrating on both sides? And a place where they could learn some kind of life skills to self-regulate at the level of the body and the mind and heart and their interactions with the world because things are so stressful, and a lot of it has to do with suffering. People are suffering. And so the pain connection comes in part because pain is kind of the way suffering presents itself, as emotional pain or physical pain if there's an injury or a chronic issue. And I was speaking with people in the pain clinic, you know, anesthesiologists, who were drawing people with chronic pain conditions and those people were to a large degree falling through the cracks of the healthcare system. They were not getting full satisfaction with the range of treatments that were being offered at that time. So they would send them to the stress reduction clinic, which is what we called it, now called mindfulness based stress reduction. And they would learn how to live with the conditions that were not magically going to disappear. And often, their pain, their physical level of pain, would attenuate because they were learning to differentiate between pain and suffering and how much the emotional and cognitive dimensions of pain can actually inflame and exacerbate a pain that you know is really coming from the body. So this is a kind of beautiful learning curve for people that is in some sense elementary and obvious if you're a meditator. But if you're not a meditator, it's like you need help from the outside. And we were saying, well, to the degree that you can get help from the outside, great, that's what medicine is all about. But what about helping yourself? What about drawing on your own deep interior resources for learning, for growing, for healing and transformation through these ancient practices that all have to do with the cultivation of awareness, of attention, of deep inquiry into the nature of who you actually are and a regard for the depths of
0: that who. A regard for the depths of that who. What does that mean? I've never heard myself quite put it that way, but
1: we tell ourselves stories all the time about who we are and how my life is ruined and this is killing me, but we don't really inquire that often about who the me is or the story of me or where I'm going and how this ruined it or all of that kind of stuff. So the meditative awareness is really about a deep inquiry into the nature of our being. And very often the narratives that we tell ourselves are just a, you know, surface glimpse and often an inaccurate read about the depth of our wholeness, the depth of our beauty, the depth of our being when we can learn how to inhabit the domain of full being and not just get caught in our thoughts and narratives and stories, most of which, if you start to pay attention to it, it's like there's a movie going on in your head constantly, and you know, and it has to do with a lot of it's the past, a lot of it's the future. Present moment tends to get squeezed out a lot of the time, especially, you know, so you don't necessarily even recognize the beauty in the present moment, the richness, the relationships, and the appreciation. And so this practice Kind of just invites people to step out of the story of me and actually be the awareness that when you boil it all down is who you might actually be much more than any story. Does that make any sense to you, the way I framed it?
0: It makes sense to me because I've been around for a minute in this space doing some meditation, and yet I'm always trying to represent the listener and they may understand it too, but let me just push you a little bit. How exactly can we use meditation to inhabit this space of awareness? And then further, how does that help us differentiate between, as you said before, pain and the suffering?
1: Yeah. Well, great questions. And I think I would start off by saying that this is not an abstraction. So that when you are suffering, when you're in pain, it's very, very real. And so to offer something that you can't wrap your mind around or sounds crazy, that's not very helpful. And so MBSR from the beginning was meant to take these meditative practices, which really, as you're suggesting, I mean, take a while to learn how to drop into and can be seen in many different lights as arcane or specialized or requires me to become a Buddhist or learn a whole different vocabulary and so forth that maybe one person out of 100 could do. And what MBSR is about is saying, no, let's like throw out the vocabulary, re language all of this and make the practices available with the intention for like 95 or 100% of the people who are coming through the door to actually get it, as opposed to 5 or 10%, which is very often what happens in meditation centers. Is like the people who stay are a very small percentage of the people who come. But in a hospital, you have a kind of moral and ethical responsibility to meet everybody's suffering as if it was possible to actually uh, transform it into wisdom, not to take away the pain, but to understand that space between pain and suffering. And that's where awareness comes in. And we never get any instruction in how to be in contact with or appreciate our own awareness. And awareness, everybody's born with it. We have it all day long. Maybe not in deep sleep for most people, but all day long. So it's not awareness itself that we're cultivating. It's actually optimizing access to our awareness. And so attention is the doorway to
0: awareness. Let me see if I can put it in very simple terms and then you can tell me if I'm close. I think what I'm hearing you say is in meditation, we learn how to be with the raw data of the pain, the raw data of our emotions about the pain and split that off, separate that off, see the difference between the raw data of the sensations and the emotions and the stories about the pain and our emotions.
1: Which is also part of the raw data, actually. It's the seeing function that we forget most of the time. So you could say a lot of the time, and you can pay attention to this in your life and see if it's true or not for you. You know, a lot of the time we're zoning along on the autopilot. So the thoughts and the emotions and the stories, they wind up being the full extent of one's, life or reality but only because we're not paying attention to the fact that all of this is in some sense thinking narrative and it's generated by certain intelligence factors that we have but sometimes if we don't recruit other intelligence factors like thought is great okay nobody i'm not knocking thought or classical education or anything like that but there's this other superpower that's at least as big as thought, in fact, bigger, and I can prove it in a second, and that's called human awareness. And how much attention does that get in our education system or the university or corporations or any place else? Well, you know, in the past 20 years, the answer is more and more, more and more. Mindfulness is moving into the mainstream of society, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's like, fully kosher or not, there's no question that we're waking up to an orthogonal dimension of experience that we've been, for the most part, just ignorant of. We have the capacity for awareness and we can examine the outer universe and the inner universe in ways that are absolutely remarkable. And we're evolving to be able to do that. And if we're not successful at it, we won't evolve. The cockroaches won't care. And a couple of more billion years on planet Earth, however hot it gets, again, the cockroaches won't care and some other life form will emerge. But if we care about what's deepest and best and most beautiful in humanity, then maybe we need to address this moment in its uniqueness and say, look, you know, this is like we're all cells of the one body of the planet, of the body politic, however you want to frame it. And if we don't get a blood supply to all of our cells, the the tissue necrosis, every cell needs an adequate blood supply. So if you take that in terms of like the planet, every human being needs an adequate blood supply of whatever it is, resources to be able to live a life of dignity, peace, health, well-being, and contribute to a larger sense of meaning and collaborative engagement. And I think that's what's going on on the planet on an evolutionary scale. And the jury's out about how successful it would be. But certainly the universe could not have imagined 20 years ago, Dan Harris now doing this (laughs) compared to what Dan Harris started out thinking his life was going to be about. And that's evidence. That's like, I would say, data of its own. It's like, well, how did that happen? And are you some kind of weird mutant? No, you're not. This is happening to millions of millions of people. People are beginning to wake up to these hidden dimensions and also the level of aspiration about what I want for the brief moment that we are alive on this planet, how to live with integrity in a way that has meaning, virtue, and uh, contributes to the larger whole. There's a certain way in which we're constantly leaving a legacy for our children, for our grandchildren, for our students, for the people we a fact because our being affects other people's being in ways that, I mean, that's what love is all about. So in a certain way, when I take my seat in the morning to meditate formally, I came to see it after maybe 30 or 40 years of sitting as like a love affair. It's not like, oh no, now I got to meditate for an hour to keep up the story of how uh, long I've been meditating or how devoted I am to the practice. It's a love affair to get your ass on the cushion, if you don't mind my putting it that way. And then just give yourself over to the domain of being outside of time. And it doesn't matter how long it happens by the clock, but to actually recognize and remember this hidden dimension of experience that is inhabitable And not only that can become your, what the neuroscientists would call your default mode, so that that's where you live. You live in awareness, embodied awareness. And then as I was saying, the first thing you recognize is that you're part of this larger whole, so profound interconnectedness with people, with the air, with water, with trees, with sunlight. And so that's where compassion arises. Like, Wonder and compassion, awe and compassion, compassion for other people who can only be who they are. And when they're suffering, the heart goes out. The heart actually takes a journey. It reaches out. We've all felt that because you want to be of some help. And sometimes, very frustratingly, you can't be of that much help because conditions have to be right to be of some use. So the love affair, the real meditation practice, life itself And if it's not a love affair, forget about it. Then it becomes one more self-improvement strategy. But there's no improving on the self because the fact of the matter is there is no self in the way that we usually talk about it. When we say I, me, and mine, we don't even have a remote idea of who we really are. So we're just limited to the narrative. And then, you know, sometimes late at night, in the middle of a nightmare or some kind of deep depression, you you know your narrative's not true, doesn't hold water, Is just like, but you cling to it like a flotsam, you know, piece of wreckage, you know, because it prevents you from drowning. But the fact of the matter is that uh, you were born able to swim. And so that's what the meditation practice is about, is sort of gifting that back to people in ways that are so commonsensical and so much like resonant without my having to say it or talk about it as as a love affair, that it's in certain ways infectious. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, the domain of being isn't getting anywhere near the amount of attention that it really is required on a daily basis. And if we do that, then actually everything's meditation, not just sitting on a cushion or something like that, but you know, how you say good morning to whoever you live with in the morning how you hold your children or your grandchildren or what comes out of your mouth everything can it just be naturally embraced in awareness without any contrivance it's not like forcing or thinking oh now i have to be mindful of what's coming out of my mouth it's not like that it's like when you're mindful it's just there's no separation between what's coming out of my mouth and what's in my heart And the Buddha is famous for having said in one of the sutras that his entire teaching repertoire of well over 40 years could be encapsulated in one sentence. And I like to say on the off chance that he wasn't kidding, and I don't think he was kidding, that maybe we should memorize that sentence. Then the sentence is, nothing is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. So it's like self-identification clinging. That's the source of delusion and the source of wanting, greed, grasping, and the source of hating and pushing away and aversion. And that's like the disease that we're basically healing by taking a look with kindness and with a certain degree of rigor and long-term commitment. So it's not about fixing yourself or improving on yourself, but it's about understanding who you are in ways that go way beyond thought. Yeah, great superpower thought, but unless you have heart and awareness, also superpowers, and they're not themselves mere thinking about, but direct experiencing, then the prognosis for the Homo sapiens sapiens is not that great. And I'm very optimistic. I think the prognosis is great, which is why I do what I do. And what I'm guessing why you do what you do and why so many people in the mindfulness space, if you want to call it that, do what they do.
0: Coming up, John talks about the limitations of mindfulness meditation as a self-improvement practice, the quote, open your mouth and you're wrong, and the invitation to die now. Weather's getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable and uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices, not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quinc slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns, quince.com/happier.
2: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed.
0: I really enjoy listening to you talk, you know, kind of tripping out with you for a number of reasons.
1: And we don't do it often enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't. You know, in listening to you talk, you're very skillful at evoking in the listener a sense of awe. And a few minutes ago, you said something that, you said many things that landed with me, but there's one particular thing you said that's provoking this question, which ultimately I'll get to, about how you can meditate in a kind of rote, Self improvement. I'm going to focus on this breath and try to focus on the next one and grit my teeth and, and try to focus and do this right and blah, blah, blah. And it can be devoid of a lot of inspiration or the bigger picture. And so I totally agree with that. I can see that in my own practice.
1: And you won't do it, it won't last very long either if it's coming out of that. It won't last very long. And you'll say things like, well, meditation doesn't work. I tried it, it's bullshit.
0: Yes. So how do we infuse the wonder into our practice beyond merely listening to you talk, which I think does the trick quite nicely? (laughs) That's very
1: sweet of you to say. My short answer would be any way you can. I mentioned the in-breath and the out-breath. I was like, who cares? You know, in-breath, out-breath, what are you talking about? Okay. Yeah. Well, somebody held your head underwater at the beach for even a fraction of a a minute, in very short order, the only thing in the entire universe that you would care about would be the next in-breath. And you will do everything to make sure that in-breath becomes a possibility. Anything. And yet we forget that you're only one breath away from being out of here. So the miracles and the wonders, it's just endless. We're talking about like the beauty of science and also the beauty of art, because meditation is a kind of art form, and it's often expressed more in poetry than anything else. So maybe it's appropriate to point out that lots of poets point to what we're speaking about, which at a certain point, words won't take you any further. That's why poetry even exists, because the poets, their karmic assignment is to put things into words that are impossible to put into words. And when the great ones do it, whether it's Shakespeare or Dante or anybody else, it's like, how did they do it? I mean, it's like, you know, it it just boggles the mind because it transcends the mind, the thinking mind, at least. So this is Emily Dickinson, if it's all right to offer it. It doesn't have a title, it's just known by its first line. Me, from myself, to banish, had I art, Impregnable my fortress unto all heart. But since myself assault me, how have I peace except by subjugating consciousness? And since we're mutual monarch, I love that, we're mutual monarch, me and myself, how this be except by abdication, me of me. So you can ask yourself, well, how much of the time in your heart of hearts, maybe only at three o'clock in the morning, do you think about this way or feel it, that you're not actually being true to yourself? Because you're too busy, too distracted, too much in your phone, too much on YouTube, too much in a toxic relationship, whatever it is, you create the warfare or barriers between me and myself banishing that part of me from myself to banish had i art and of course you know as i understand it with emily dickinson she had a very you know sort of challenging and heartbreaking love affair we all know something about that from our youth at least and how much we define ourselves by the love of another well that that's not actually Such an effective way to develop a stable relationship that's going to last over decades because you're leaning. It's like trying to make two crutches stand up in space by leaning against each other, not stable. You got to learn how to stand on your own in your full humanity and not banish me from myself.
0: What do you think she meant by mutual monarch? I love that phrase too.
1: Oh, isn't that beautiful? Yeah, we're mutual
0: monarch. Who is me and myself? What's the bifurcation?
1: Well, I I think it means Buddha nature. It's your original nature. So, with mutual monarch means there never was a separation. We are in charge here. We're the ruler. We're the the throne. But when we separate ourselves from ourselves, then we're abdicating large parts of ourselves. Robert Bly used to talk about this speak about another poet who's like totally amazing. Robert Bly used to say everybody's born with a little black bag over their shoulder. And over the course of their life, all of the things that they're told they're bad or they shouldn't do this or they're no good or all of those sort of things that kind of other people will try to be helpful about, but that are really toxic, you take them and you stuff them because you don't want to look at any of that stuff. So You stuff it into your bag. And by the time you're in your 30s or 40s, you've got a bag that's like so long that when you walk into the elevator, the doors close on the bag. It's so long and it's so heavy and you're dragging it around everywhere. And this is the kind of story of me when we believe what other people project onto us, whether it's positive or negative. I mean, the positive is just as toxic as the negative. And we've seen so many people become like worshipped by their followers, and then, you know, just uh, fall into total unethical behavior, disharmony, and so forth. And surprise, well, projections are toxic. So, you have to actually embody what it is that you're offering. And that means understanding that we're mutual monarchs, so to speak. Yeah, on a relative level, there's me and myself, right? But on an absolute level, it's beyond words. So, again Santanim used to say open your mouth and you're wrong <laughs> can it be talked about
0: open your mouth and you're wrong I mean that that is such a nice corrective against the epidemic the pandemic of certainty that I see in our culture it's like I'm right you're wrong everybody else is wrong except for the people in my tribe
1: well there's the i me and my is also like at the heart of dualism. There's self and there's other. So that's the dualism. And that expresses on a lot of different levels, but on the social level, it's us versus them. Okay. It's us versus them. And it's tribalism, just as you're saying. And in the evolution of human beings, people would kill each other over that kind of stuff or figure out ways to sort of make peace. But there's been an evolutionary arc. That's why I keep coming back to the sort of evolutionary nature of this, that yeah, we're learning how to grow out of that tribal thing when there were maybe like a million human beings on the planet all together, because now it's seven billion and they don't have spears, they have nuclear weapons. And so we need a reboot. We need to kind of reassess, like, what is our karmic assignment here as a species? And... The Hippocratic Oath is, you know, to come back to medicine and MBSR and the hospital, the Hippocratic Oath is a very good place to start, even though it's not always honored in, you know, the actual embodiment of it, but it's first do no harm. And how would you even know if you're doing harm unless you're aware, unless you're mindful, and unless you're heartful? Because if you're harming another person, say, by your words, or by even a look that you don't notice... And you don't notice that you've harmed that person. That just perpetuates suffering. But if you catch it, then you can do all sorts of things. You can apologize if it's after the fact, in a sincere apology, and learn from it, and not do it down the road when you get triggered, so to speak, feel defensive, and then you wind up lashing out or just stupidly saying something that's really hurtful to another person a certain kind of othering, all that comes from tribalism. And, uh, you know, our karmic assignment is to outgrow it, and the only way to do it is exercise the muscle of mindfulness, of heartfulness. And when we take responsibility and live this practice in an ethical way, you know, first do no harm, and again, how would you know it unless you're aware? Then that, in a certain sense, uh, reaffirms what living might be, what the, you know, the nature of possibility, embodied possibility, so that it's not like some dream thing for the future, but it's right here, right now in no time. So you're not, when you sit down to meditate, just for anybody who's like listening to this dimension of it, you notice how much you might be bringing to that sitting down that, now what am I supposed to do? You know, what am I supposed to feel? How can I feel good and stuff like that? And all of that is irrelevant. It's just like, it's now feeling what's here to be felt, seeing what's here to be seen, knowing what's here to be known, knowing what's not known, and just being okay with that in no time. So it's not like, now you build a story out of that, but it's just like this moment, this moment, and something deeply transformative unfolds when we give ourselves over to that kind of a resting taking up residency in awareness. All we need is to be in this moment and the next moment will take care of itself. And we don't need to fill it or pursue anything or push anything away. And then now what? Yeah. And then stay open, keep your heart open, keep your eyes open, keep your all, all your senses and see what might be possible. And then it just becomes like the adventure of a lifetime. But you're here for it. Rather than just before you die, as Thoreau said famously in Walden, you don't want to just before you die, wake up and realize that you hadn't lived, that you were living in the story of me. And it was wrong. It wasn't a complete story. It wasn't true. But it was a prison. And now you die. So that's why in the yoga tradition, and Ramana Maharshi actually did this when he was 16 years old, he laid down the coffin. And uh, decided, okay, I'm going to just die now. And he woke up, apparently. That's the story. And it seems to be confirmed by however many decades he lived afterwards and taught. But that's why in yoga, of all the 84,000 main yoga poses and 10 variations on each one of those yoga poses, they say the hardest of all the yoga poses is the corpse pose, where you're just lying on your back. Okay, because the real invitation, why do they call it the corpse pose? Isn't that a little on the maudlin side? Well, no, it's not. It's actually an incredible gift. The invitation is like, die now. Die now to say the future. Die now to the past and then wake up into the present. That's what the corpse pose really is. Die to all of that stuff, the me from myself to banish and all of that. Warfare that goes on within ourselves, wanting to have the perfect life when you already, in some sense, have it. And it's a miracle. And it, the body itself is a miracle. Never mind the mind, the family, <laughs> children, old age, I mean, everything. And that's what realization is all about. Waking up. realizing, it. And then don't build a big story about enlightenment or anything like that. Because that'll imprison you as well as anything else and give you seriously wrong ideas about what this is all about.
0: Coming up, John talks about equanimity, relabeling your anxiety, and his definition of healing. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favorite. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% Happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if They were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. I hear you talk here and you talk about, you know, ending the war between the mutual monarchs, realizing that you have what you need right now. And that's very appealing to me as somebody who's quite anxious. And, you know, I can think back to some of the more operatic moments for me on my various meditation retreats and the common denominator among all of the moments that I might call a quote unquote breakthrough, which is probably not the right terminology, is a feeling of everything's okay. And yet I go back to my life and I'm still dealing with a quite dogged sense of fear. And so when I hear you talk, I'm both inspired and feeling a little bit like a failure.
1: Okay, let's go to the everything's okay part of it. What do you mean by everything's okay?
0: Well, I'm not in that mind state right now, so it's hard for me to summon it. But yeah, I guess it's just a, a, a real equanimity, a sense of like, I can handle whatever comes up. I'm not in control of it, but I can be cool with whatever happens.
1: So things are as they are, basically. Yes. Okay. Yes. And you mentioned equanimity, which is a, a very powerful space that is inhabitable with and is congruent with wisdom, where you see that the nature of greed, hatred, and delusion and its consequences in terms of suffering has been ongoing. But when it comes to just everything is as it is, that doesn't mean that you don't act. It means that you act from a place of boundless spaciousness where it's fine to recognize that there's anxiety, too. You know, that like, yeah, I mean, and I still have to do this, this and this. And it's challenging and, you know, and then people react in one way or another. So it's not like that stuff doesn't still pertain, what changes is how you are in relationship to it, including how you're in relationship with, I'll say it this way, your own anxiety, although it's not yours. It's more like a weather pattern in the mind. But when we take it personally, then it becomes my anxiety. And just to notice the difference between my anxiety and this this cloud of contracted feeling that's overcoming my jaw and my back and my face and comes with a lot of sorrow or fear. And then all of a sudden, it's like a snowstorm or a blizzard or, you know, rain. And it's just a weather pattern and you don't have to take it personally. In my own experience, I've found that over time, that's really helpful. I mean, anxiety arises at times. And if not for oneself, for one's loved ones, for people one cares about, you know, the what ifs and the, oh my God, no, and all of this stuff, which is the actuality. And as you're saying, this is it. This is the way it is. It's always been this way, only now it's this way with more beauty and more destructive power. So the challenge is always the same. How am I or how are we going to be in wise relationship to it? And so then the anxiety, you put it the welcome mat for it's if it's here, it becomes an object of our meditation practice. Welcome, anxiety, and let's let it just do its thing. We don't try to get rid of it. We don't pursue it, but we just let it work itself out as a storm. And then have you ever had the thought afterwards like, what was I so anxious about? What's a big <laughs> deal here? You know, it's like until the next time you get anxious, and then it's like, yeah, oh my god exactly. it's the same goddamn thing. <laughs> So that's kind of like, it's funny, we're laughing about it, but we're not laughing about it when we're in the midst of something like that. And that's where remembering what the practice offers is in no time. It's like really liberating. It's liberating of the suffering associated with the anxiety. Or with sort of the sensation if we're talking about physical pain, acute physical pain. And when we turn towards it and open to it and put the welcome mat out, it just gives us new degrees of freedom. It doesn't make everything better, but it gives us new degrees of freedom with working with that. And that's my working definition of the word healing is not fixing, not curing, making it the way it used to be when I was 20 years younger, but coming to terms with things as they are. And so how do we come to terms with the fact that I'm anxious or depressed or whatever? And part of it is like, you could ask, well, just the way who's dying, you could ask in the corpse pose. You'd ask, who's anxious? Who's depressed? And then you you see the story of me. And then you see the emptiness of the story of me. It's like empty of any kind of essential nature. And then it's kind of like, it it like falls apart. It's like a construct that's making out out of thin air. And you see the impersonal empty nature of it, but it's a real experience. It's not coming out of some kind of philosophy or some kind of thing you read about, you know, the role of emptiness in meditation practice. But it's the nature of reality, and the space of awareness is not just, as we said, boundless and centerless, so just like the universe, but it's also mostly empty. I mean, it's really empty. And it's also, another word for empty would be full, because it's absolutely full of possibility. And I just love that, because it's kind of like, uh, it is healing. It's a way for us to come to terms with enormous levels of pain and suffering, and then do what we can, and not beat ourselves up for what we can't. And then the arc would be, coming back to MBSR, you come to MBSR because you're suffering, you're in pain of one kind or another, in the hospital for eight weeks, once a week, two and a half hour class. I mean, and you learn this stuff and you have heard hear about it maybe for the first time, you've never read any books. And it's like you start to learn something about other people because you're listening to other people talk about their suffering. We almost never get to hear from strangers about the depths of their suffering. It's like jaw-dropping, and then you realize you're part of a much larger circle here. So that learning, what does learning do to us? Why is education so important? Because we grow as a, an outcome of learning something, put two and two together, and it grows into four, and a realization that two and two is four, okay, that's like new. So we learning, growing, And out of that growing is that coming to terms with things as they are. We can't just fix everything, but we can contribute in whatever ways we can. And out of healing comes transformation, that you're the same person you always were, only you're not. Because as Wordsworth put it, you've recognized discordant elements that now move in one society, you know. So it's like things become unified and you're who you always were, but it's embodied, for now. And the next moment takes care of itself if you take care of this one. And it's a lifetime adventure, lifetime love affair, as far as I can see. I haven't made it to the end yet, so I I can't reveal the ending, (laughs) but many other people have. And I feel incredibly privileged to be living at this particular time where there is really a potential renaissance of wakefulness and compassion Arising on the planet in the face of all this darkness and destruction and the challenges to the earth itself. And I think we're equipped. We're really well equipped to thread this needle. And I think that's why having a podcast is a good idea because somebody's going to be listening to this. I don't know. It's a mystery how, like, people just listen and then they connect. And not so much with Dan Harris or me, but they connect with themselves through a conversation like this. And that is part of the healing and the transformation. And we're all doing what we can. And it's just insanely beautiful. And I love that we've been in relationship in some weird way over so many decades. And, you know, that the beat goes on and just the, un, the adventure unfolds.
0: I'm grateful for that, for sure. And I'm grateful to you for taking the time to do this podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure for me.
0: Thanks again to John kabat Thanks to you for listening. Do us a solid and go into your podcast player and rate or review us or both. Five stars would be nice. It's kind of like Uber. Thanks as well to everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman, and Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio, and Nick Thorburn of the band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you right back here on Friday for a bonus.
2: Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over three hundred thousand travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and twenty four seven customer support for worry free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator ten for ten percent off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Shimolai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition.